0: The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome to Restoration Radio, um, Season 2. I am your host today, Stephen Heiner, and I am joined by His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. Welcome, Your Excellency.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be with you again.
0: Um, Pleasure, pleasure is mutual, Your Excellency. Our topic today is the Chair of Saint Peter, and uh, we're recording this um, before your trip down to Mexico this weekend, Your Excellency. And I I don't know if some of our listeners note that part of the reason that you were consecrated was to go on these mission trips um down mm-hmm. to, to mexico can you tell us a little bit about this trip in particular and then just briefly
1: about your apostolate down there in general uh, sure um well i studied in i studied high school spanish at the uh, minor seminary in detroit and always a little bit kept up my Spanish, and as a young Pius tenth priest, served uh, a chapel in um, a Miami area, and had some occasion to work with the Cubans there, so that as, as time went on, I was usually able to hear confessions and do some business in Spanish, and uh, uh, at some point, as I got to know Bishop Piverunas, he invited me to go with him to visit Mexico after the death of Bishop Carmona, and... Um, then it became maybe a logical thing that I could assist uh, the the priests there with uh, with the sacraments and the pastoral visits and so forth. So that was indeed one of His Excellency's ideas in asking me to be consecrated a bishop in 1993. And so I've been visiting Mexico uh, at least once, if not twice a year, for up uh, twenty years now, actually longer than twenty years. And um, this visit takes me right across the border from San Diego into Tijuana, which actually was the first Mexican town I had ever visited when I was in California in 68, I think, as a um, uh, as a young minor seminarian looking for a traditional seminary to go to, and I visited St. Michael's, the Norbertine Fathers in um, uh, Orange, California, and then we went across the border to Tijuana, and, boy, it was an eye-opener. You know, it was really rough of border towns, but I remember at the same time being impressed by it and by the devotion to Our Lady and the, uh, and the beautiful churches. So now um, there is a, there's a chapel in um, Tijuana, and the priest of Father Villegas uh, invited me to come. They don't have a bishop at this time. They invited me to, invited me to come then and visit them, spend the weekend with them, and um, give the sacrament of confirmation on, on Sunday. And it's a good occasion because it's the great Feast of Epiphany.
0: Hmm, that's excellent. Well, we are talking about another feast later this month. Uh, we mm-hmm. of course we've got the epiphany we've got the Epiphany coming up right before uh this taping. Mm-hmm.
1: Um
0: but the cherished Peter, Yarc, what a what a uniquely uh Catholic Uh are are uniquely Catholic when we think about them. But um when I think about this I think about the back of St. Peter's, and, and you've got to get through all the other beautiful things in St. Peter's. You've got to go all the way to the back, or the front, you could say. Uh, and in the back, yeah. you have this Bernini designed um, piece of art that, that in a way, summarizes the importance of this this chair. Um, I, I'm going to post a picture of this on Twitter, Your Excellency. I'd love to hear your comments on. On that, on, on the artwork and, and maybe the significance of that artwork tying to the feast, and then we'll probably start talking a little bit about the feast
1: itself. Okay, uh, I, I certainly remember from my first visit to, to St. Peter many years ago how, how impressive that was. Particularly when the uh, sun comes through that glorious stained glass window of the Holy Ghost, and you can take in the whole of the, the breathtaking ensemble. It's as you say, it's it's prototypically Catholic uh, in capital letters. And at the same time, the high point of Baroque art. Uh, inside that magnificent bronze chair of St. Peter are the remaining relics, about 15 boards of St. Peter's original chair that he had used, and which was used for about 15 centuries by his successors. They were, first of all, they were kept in a papal throne, Obviously, the thrones came and went, but the relics were, were transferred until finally they went to, into Bernini's reliquary. So it's really a, it's a reliquary, actually. And those 15 boards are bound together with um, decorative um, ivory, worked ivory bands. So on the one hand, it's, uh, it's a magnificent, um, it's a magnificent uh, piece of Baroque art. Some have regretted that the Pope's after Bernini, we're no longer able to actually to sit in that chair. It would be quite a quite a feat to get yourself up there, I'm sure, and to, and to manage to sit in there. But the, the 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 spiritual symbolism remains and is certainly quite glorious. That reminds me of a story with which I would like to start, with your permission, Stephen. It's a story about um, uh, about one of the um, one of the first uh, European priests. There were some in France and some in Germany uh, to be expelled in the, maybe about 1980 or even before by Archbishop Lefebvre for holding that the chair is vacant, the, the position called Sadie Vacantism. He, he was a German priest named Father Gunther Richter. Uh, rest in peace, he's, he's, he's since uh, died. Um, Father Richter was visiting some friends in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, in the early 80s, and was endeavouring to persu- to persuade a German uh, lady about uh, about the the state of a countess position, when her husband, who did not hold the position at all, came home and was quite upset to hear what what they were talking about that day. And he had brought a bouquet of flowers for his wife. And he actually sort of flew into a rage and at a certain point. He said, well, if we're going to be empty chair people, here. And then he put the flowers on, the empty, on an empty chair in the dining room. Let's all kneel down then and honor the empty chair. But um, unwittingly, this, this man actually touched in some sense a very, very important theme in Catholic art, Catholic life. And in Catholic worship, which means Catholic symbolism too, the idea that the chair of Saint Peter, empty or occupied, is another question, has always been honored by the Church, and that's what's at the heart of these feast days. We say these feast days because there is a feast day of Saint, in the traditional missal, the feast day of Saint Peter's chair at, at Rome on the 18th of January, and his chair at Antioch. On the the 22nd of February. Um, These, I I say it was a question of honoring the chair, and, and in a sense that's true, and it seems from what I've read that there were always those who were afraid that especially the simple people would carry the devotion to the actual chair or one of his chairs of St. Peter a little bit too far. And these feast days were always connected with um, then the veneration of relics and uh, simple the simple devotion of the faithful. <clears throat> they say that probably the earliest occurrence of honoring the chair of St. Peter was in uh, the cemetery in the Via Nomentana in Rome. And that goes back to about the third or maybe the early fourth Century, and this chair was actually carved out of the. It's called tufa, T-U-F-A, the volcanic rock that that's found in the in the catacombs of of Rome. And the faithful and pilgrims from all over would come and they would honor that chair they, because it was a chair that St. Peter had used, it was traditionally believed, for, for offering some of his masses and for some of his uh, sermons. It was his uh, his throne as, as, as the Bishop of Rome. And uh, they're burned in front of this chair in the catacomb, uh, lamps with... Um, perfumed oil. What the pilgrims would do would be to dip a little piece of cloth or of cotton, like a cotton puff, into the oil and take it back home with them after they made their devotions, and they would keep it as a precious relic. It, that's, that's interesting because that's always been a way for Catholics of um, venerating holy articles and at the same time Maybe of keeping some kind of a keepsake. You may know that today, for example, uh, uh, still today, it's common, as has been throughout the centuries in the church's life, for that maybe the sick to be blessed with oil that had been in a lamp burning either before the Blessed Sacrament or, say, before an image of the Holy Face, or miraculous image of Our Lady, and people would do the same thing. They'd put a little cotton into the oil, and then they would take the oil and then, and then use it to anoint a sick person. So that's a that's an interesting thread that's gone all the way through. But my my reading is that there was some controversy about honoring this chair because it was felt that maybe some of the simple faithful got a little bit maybe superstitious or excessive in their devotion and that some church authorities over the centuries uh, wanted to see this particular devotion suppressed but they were never successful with it even though for many centuries there there really wasn't any one uniform uh, feast of honoring saint peter's chair nevertheless the, uh, the Vatican chapter itself in, in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome always recited the office and always um, uh, c- celebrated the Mass on the 22nd of February for, um, for St. Peter's chair. There, there was a, a little controversy, too, between the chair that was honored in, in the catacombs in Rome and between the chair that we've, we've just now spoken of, the, um, the wooden chair. Which whose relics are now enshrined in Bernini's in Bernini's uh, reliquary in the apse of St Peter's Basilica. Um, that's uh, it was a wooden chair, and there was also a wooden altar that was used, and those are those are signs of really authenticity, because the Pope would have to uh, the St Peter and then the popes after him during the persecution would offer mass, usually in a in a private home. And these uh, portable articles—a chair, a small altar—could be moved from place to place, and then that would be convenient, and that would really work for for the times of the um, of the persecution. Um, so, how do we end up with the how do we end up with the two feast days of Saint Peter's chair, and why was it that the modernists who were composing the John, the, what we call the John the Twenty-Third, uh, missal, suppressed the feast day on the eighteenth of January. There are a couple of theories about that, but it seems likely that um, the feast of Saint Peter's Chair on the eighteenth of January comes, of all things, from a Gallican or a French liturgical uh, source. I say of all things. Because when you hear the word Gallican, you think right away about um, the efforts under the somewhat less inglorious French kings, including the Sun King uh, Louis XIV, to uh, to rem- remove and to moderate um, and to control, in some sense, the the the, the true papal prerogatives the prerogatives of the Pope in France. But this, goes, this takes us back centuries before, when there, when there was in the Catholic Church this sense that uh, Lent is such a great serious fast that one should not keep any feast days during Lent. And that's probably the origin of the Feast of St. Peter's Chair on the 18th of January, that the Gallicans, and then eventually that came to Rome, the Gallican Church early, early on fixed that date so as to have uh, the Feast of the Papal Primacy, which is what we're talking about here, the Papal Primacy in uh, January instead of in February, because in February, as will be the case this year, it would fall during Lent, and that was considered that, that just wouldn't, wouldn't be possible. But as I say, pretty much uh, the, 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 feasts, uh, the Feast Day, either in February outside of France, and maybe Rome, and then uh, then the the January Feast, they pretty much um, fell into desuetude. They they weren't observed in any sort of a strict or regular fashion for many, many centuries, until we get to the glorious uh, Pope uh, Paul IV, who in 1558 decided that he would um, restore the Feast of St. Peter's Chair, and make it obligatory for the whole church. And that's where we get the Feast of St. Peter's Chair at Antioch from. That um, Because there were two dates for St. Peter's Chair, then the Holy Father decided to fix one to honor the fact that wherever the pope is why then 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 he indeed has his chair that is a chair well, i guess i should have started out by saying the chair means the uh, the cathedra the uh, the teaching office the authority of the pope so the authority of the pope as vicar of christ rested in antioch Area for a while, and then it was moved finally to Rome. So he kept both dates, which because of, because there were in the church uh, different places and times, uh, there are traditions of two dates. So he kept both dates, but assigned the the more ancient Roman date to Antioch and the newer the French date to to Rome. And so that's how basically that's how we get the two dates. And it's interesting you you brought up cathedra,
0: Your Excellency, because. Obviously, some of our listeners may not make that connection that chair means. Cause they, yeah. Most Catholics, when, when you say ex-cathedra, was probably the American mm-hmm. pronunciation. Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. They, they, they know what that means, but they don't necessarily mm-hmm. think of, oh, everyday household item, chair, cathedra, and when you think of two chairs here, when you go into any church, uh, any, uh, well, I think of. Occupied territory. Really, yeah, if you yeah. go into these um, uh, cathedrals that are currently occupied by modernists, you'll see a cathedral. Sometimes it's the traditional one. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. some newfangled. Uh, looks very uncomfortable to sit in uh, <laughs> chair. Um, and that, re- and you, as you referred to, that represents the teaching office. So in a way, yeah. if we think about if we think of sort of the the big mythos of of St Peter's chair,
1: when we think of
0: simply a bishop's chair, that to mm-hmm. us represents
1: teaching. It represents magisterial yeah. authority. Exactly, exactly. And um, the chair itself represents that. And herein lies an interesting little factoid. Um, everything that's used in the Catholic Church properly, according to the rubrics, has, has, a, has a certain symbolism or a distinct meaning. Actually, it's forbidden to have a chair in uh, the Catholic Church, in the sanctuary, I mean, in the, in the clergy's domain, as it were, and, except the, the chair, the cathedra, the throne for the bishop, because a full chair, that is to say, with backs and with arms is a symbol of teaching authority. And the classical way for a bishop to give his sermon would be, would be seated with mitre and crozier on his throne, his cathedra, where we teach there, and, and the same thing, of course, for, for the pope. Um, what the lesser clergy are, are meant to use is uh, some form of a stool. So, for example, when I celebrate a pontifical mass, I use uh, an elaborate form of a stool called a fold stool, but it has it has no back. It's a stool, and the symbolism is clear. I'm not a bishop with ordinary jurisdiction. I'm not the bishop of a diocese. Uh, I uh, am, am a bishop in ex- extraordinary circumstances. I guess I, I guess you could call me, to use their new lingo, an extraordinary bishop, right? Um, some some people might agree, some people might disagree with that. But in any case, I certainly don't enjoy ordinary jurisdiction. Everybody would pretty much agree with that one, and so I don't I don't use the the, the throne or the chair. Um, other traditional bishops do, but they really shouldn't. It's it, their symbolism means something. In the old days, sometimes um, the purveyors of church goods would sell the you know, the reverend pastor uh, a sedilla. It's called a sedilla, the, 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 the seats, the little seats, literally, that look like a chair. And sometimes you actually, that's actually what you see, and I always cringe whenever I see a chair in a Catholic sanctuary, because unless it's a choir stall, uh, then uh, you're, you're thinking of a chair, and then that's, you've got the wrong symbolism there. So the Catholic Church, we have symbolism, all, and all the symbolism really matters. A good example of that is... Um, The priest, hearing confessions, he hears confessions seated. Why does he hear confessions seated? Where is he sitting? Well, he's sitting in some form of a chair. And then he can, because he enjoys, for that moment, he enjoys jurisdiction. And he is going to open or close the gates of heaven. He's going to judge. He performs an act of jurisdiction to judge whether or not the penitent, as far as he knows, is well disposed and worthy to receive the sacramental absolution. So he's seated in the chair. So all, even though the little little things matter uh, to reduce the whole, you might say, theology of the chair to the ex cathedra, as our American brethren would say, is a real shame. Uh, but that's, that's what they do. and when they do that, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's the Galligan work, that is to say, the work of reducing the, the um, authority of the Church, the authority of the successors of Peter. That's, uh, that, 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 that's another story, but that's a, a very, very bad thing. But back to the chair. S- things are supposed to symbolize. In the Catholic Church, something that is used has a symbol, has a specific and an exact symbol, and we Catholics should know about it, and then we should try to respect it. So when we say, the Feast of St. Peter's Chair, what we're really saying is the, pre- the, the Feast of the the, um, the Primacy of uh, St. Peter and we're honoring him as the bishop of Rome, and that's because uh, uh, St. Peter and his successors are the bishops of Rome, then therefore they are the vicars of Jesus Christ upon earth. So this, that, that's, that's really a very strong meaning of the feast. Um, there's another very little-known um, feast, or rather observance, not actually a feast, but it's an observance, which marks the day, traditionally, on which St. Peter first set foot in Rome. And uh, that's uh, the explanation for what we call the greater litanies, or the litanies of St. Mark, on St. Mark's Day on the 25th of April each year. Uh, This is a beautiful Catholic observance that's unfortunately pretty much died out but it's meant to be observed with the chanting of a a litany of the saints in procession. And they say that the origin of that on that day, only later on, was the day given over to St. Mark. But the 25th of March was the day on which St. Peter first entered into the city of Rome. So actually, we Catholics have in our unchanged missal three distinct days or observances to honor this awesome truth of St. Peter, uh, possessed of the authority of, of the Prince of the Apostles founded in the Gospel text itself, St. Matthew, to es Petrus, as you can read in the great cupola over the altar of St. Peter's, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That's a little bit of, of the history of all of that.
0: And you're actually, I want to backtrack for a minute
1: um, to
0: your talking about the importance of the things having meaning within the Catholic Sanctuary, because sometimes, you know, as Catholics, we, we'll do the wrong thing, you know, and, and, and any, anyone can see from, from any, uh, let's say, pontifical Mass, that sometimes the Master of Ceremonies has to move someone here into this position and there into that position. There's a reason why they're being moved there, there's a reason there's a Gospel side, there's an Epistle side, and we do these things yes. because we want to do them right, not just because we right. want to muddle through. So, you're referring right. to the fact that some of some traditional bishops um, don't observe the fall stool. They will c- celebrate Pontifical Mass of the Throne. I thought it'd be worth visiting uh, this particular phenomenon within the Pius X Society that these bis- this is an artifact of Archbishop Lefebvre, and some people don't necessarily know about this. That obviously you have a particular connection, devotion to the bishop who consecrated you, and you follow. His customs sometimes, but the problem is that things, privileges that were granted to the archbishop, uh, right. obviously did not pass down pass down to his bishop. So, the archbishop actually had an episcopal seat and retained. Uh, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, Your Excellency. He, he retained the yeah. ability to celebrate mass at some sort of throne because he had
1: an episcopal seat at some point. No, uh, where what happened? Uh, actually, what happened, Stephen, is that he was uh, given an, a privilege as a result of an honorary uh, position called the assistant to the pontifical throne. Father Ciccata reminisces visiting uh, Archbishop Lefebvre in the... Uh, 80s for some sort of an anniversary, maybe it was just the anniversary of the founding of the Pius X Society, but he went over to Switzerland at really, kind of the last minute, and the Archbishop was in sort of a mellow mood. It was just a small group of priests that were there for the celebration. And at some point after dinner, uh, went back to his room and got out a box with all of his, all of his memorabilia in there, and he showed Father Chakot and the others this papal bull that um, made him to be an assistant to the pontifical throne. So one of the personal privileges he had was uh, to pontificate at the throne wherever he was, which usually is a privilege given only to cardinals. So it's not really given to Pius X Society bishops, I want to make that clear, but their idea (laughs) is... Yeah, that's right. But their their idea is that they're sort of all sort of baby Archbishop Lefebvre's and said that if Monseigneur did it, then that would be all right for them to do too. But it's not true at all. It's just a privilege that was personal to the archbishop and it, and it died with him. In the old days, a visiting bishop, uh, a next-term bishop or an auxiliary bishop, we would say, who was not the bishop of the of the, of the the diocese, had no right to pontificate at the throne unless he received permission from from the bishop the bishop of the diocese, which sometimes was given and then sometimes it was uh, not given. So there, there's, a, there's a symbolism there. More, actually, more and more traditional bishops nowadays are using the throne, and maybe they've got some, you know, some, 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 some way worked out to justify that, but I don't think it's proper to do that. And, and the, 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 the symbolism is, is, is a beautiful one that, that we bishops today who are left this terrible crisis of the church, who don't have ordinary jurisdiction, we content ourselves with uh, with using the false stone.
0: Well, in your excellency, while we're on the subject of jurisdiction, we also, and we're talking about symbols and we're talking about the proper way to do things. I've also mm-hmm. often, sometimes seen people improperly genuflect when kissing uh, a
1: traditionalist bishop's ring, but this is actually right. not proper, yes. correct? Well, it's not it's not proper and it's almost um in in bishop's defense since i'm one myself i'll I'll say that it's one of those things that's almost impossible to 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 get people not to do, and so at some point you just sort of genteelly give up but the 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 proper greeting for a bishop is um you should really kiss his ring, you shouldn't shake his hand, number one, you know we're not you know French. Uh, revolutionaries or something and or American Democrats and you shouldn 't kneel down because the kneel down in this in this context is a as a sign of the jurisdiction of the office that the bishop has got his he 's got his throne, his cathedral, his teaching office, and that he enjoys ordinary jur- jurisdiction from the through the pope from our lord himself, and that 's what you 're really venerating There was a dis- distinction that was made and it 's a liturgical distinction that um when one genuflected to the bishop when Jane functions on the left knee and to the altar or the blessed sacrament using the right knee. That was another sort of a fine distinction that was made. But um, you're really supposed to just bow and then kiss the bishop's ring. Uh, and then and then, and then really nothing, nothing more than that. And it would be the same thing when the bishop blesses. Bishops encourage, because he can, to give lots of blessings. And uh, he gives these little signs of the cross as he, as he moves to a church, say, well... Technically, the correct thing to do is simply to to receive that with a bow, but uh, because of custom and, uh, as we say, custom contrary to law, a lot of people will will, will end up kneeling down. The, The problem always is the older people who kneel down and they can't get up again. And then it's your job as a bishop to kind of haul them up, which can be quite a procedure at times.
0: That must fall under the fishers of men category. You're actually that's very good, David. I'm sure you're, you're, you're right. <laughs> you're you're reaching down to pull up the net. Um, well, this is why I wanted to
1: give,
0: I wanted to give you that context and opportunity to correct people because I'm I'm sure it, it, it you get tired of no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. And,
1: And then afterwards, just throw your hands up and say, okay, whatever you want to do. (laughs) That's right. But that's all right. (laughs) And that, too, is um, somehow that spirit is not exactly okay, whatever you want to do. But somehow a little bit of that spirit really does have to inform and and, uh, inspire which, you know, I guess for want of a better term, I would say a working bishop, a true Catholic bishop who has nothing to do with the new false religion of Rome, um, that there has to be this sense of understanding and accommodation to people and the the realization at least once a day that, wait a minute, we're living in extraordinary times. Most people are just really doing the best that they can, and you have to be as as accommodating as possible here. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you, you talking we we use
0: the term modernist occupiers a lot um, in our mm-hmm. in this show so far, Your Excellency. Um, you, some people may not know that you, um, the younger version of you, wrote a uh, an article um, doing a side by side of uh, the Pius the and the John the Twenty Third missiles, which is something I'd love to have another show on at some point. But uh, we can. you can find it on traditionalmass.org, and I'm about to put a link to that on Twitter. Um, okay. I've also put a picture of the, um, the chair of St. Peter by Bernini. I've also put that on Twitter. If anyone listening has any questions that they'd like to uh, submit to His Excellency, you can do so. Our Twitter handle is at True Restoration. So you'll find the links to His Excellency's article and the picture of Bernini's chair there. But... Um, the point that I was trying to make here actually, is you, you, one of the things, I think, of point 16 in your side-by-side uh, showing is the abolition of the feast of St. Mm-hmm. Peter's Chair in Rome. Yes. Why, why was it so – I mean, there's a bunch of other beautiful feasts as well, um, including the, the changing of St. Joseph, patron of the Universal Church, to St. Joseph the Worker, or as I've heard it called, Saint Joseph Com- St. Joseph the Communist.
1: Um, oh yes indeed. So
0: indeed. <laughs> uh, we have St
1: Saint, Saint Peter's chair in Rome abolished. Why why is it important to abolish this feast? Well, the the the, the modernists had set themselves a, a a principle of uh of avoiding in fact the term is actually used in Sacrosanctum Concilium in the Vatican II decree on the on the sacred liturgy that useless duplications were to be avoided. So the modernists would would dismiss the, this, these two venerable traditions, <clears throat> which had grown up in the church for, as we've discussed earlier, for all sorts of interesting historically and then spiritually too um, uh, reasons. The modernists say, "Oh, you don't need two for this. Saint right? Peter's Chair, one feast. Twenty second is the is obviously the older of, of the two and the authentic. That's what we're going to stay with that one, and the other one we will abolish." Uh, but the whole the whole history of the feast is of such interest and such importance, and the fact that in um, 1558, Paul IV decided that he did want to honor the stay of St. Peter at Antioch in Syria before he uh, moved on and entered into the eternal city of Rome. There's there's a living history there. And besides, as we well know, human nature, we learn by duplication. We learn by repetition. So it's a little bit the same thing, and you'll find that in that same article that I did years ago, um, about the abolition of the octaves. Why is it important that we should observe octaves? These feast days are not of a rank to admit of octaves but uh, St. Peter and Paul Feast, June 29th, has an octave, so does Epiphany. Epiphany is really one of the greatest feast days of the year. Uh, But these feast days have all lost their octaves. Octaves give us the opportunity for eight days in a row to meditate on to go back to the same theme, to hear about it again, to think about it, to honor it, so that we can really live what the liturgy has to offer us. Uh, during these days, and of course, there's a symbolism there, too. The, the number eight is the number of of eternity. There are seven days in the week, seven days of creation, and the eighth is the day of the resurrection. It's the day of eternity. So when we keep a feast for eight days, we say that symbolizes our desire to keep the feast one day in heaven when there will be no there will be no uh, passage of time anymore when it is when it is indeed the uh, the ever present now. So you have a rich history that we've been developing a little bit today, Stephen, of these two parallel feasts um, and all sorts of interesting truths as well as um, uh, as well as um, realities just about human nature itself, you might say. And then with one swipe of the pen, the the feast of uh, St. Peter's Chair is abolished but it's a curious and a very um, and a very uh, ironic fact however while the feast of um, St. Peter's Chair in Rome January 18th was abolished or maybe you might say transferred to the February 22nd observance and then Antioch was ab- abolished nevertheless it is still Observed in a sense by modernist Rome, as the Pius X people would say, and uh, observed really uh, throughout the world. The 18th of January is the opening day of what's called the Chair, used to be called the Chair of Unity Octave when it was an indulgence devotion in the Catholic Church, and now today it is um, the week of prayer for Christian unity. So you will see. Uh, Ratzinger or some other character like him with all of his uh, cardinals and bishops and, and monsignors and, and, uh, and as many non-Catholics as they can possibly get in one place. And they will all go to, usually I think St. Peter, St. Paul, without the walls in Rome. And they'll have a big observance on the 18th of January to start this. Well, it was it started as a week of prayer for the return of the dissidents and the non-Catholics to, to Rome. And that was, as I say, an indulgence, devotion. It's an interesting history itself. Uh, but they're still observing that, that date, in other words, in some sense. And the reason they're doing it is because it has touched the sacred wire of ecumenism. And anything that has any ecumenical potential at all is to be... Uh, Unchanged, left in place, honored, and deeply respected. Father Chicata in his book, Work, uh, Work of Human Hands, about the New Mass, makes that point more than once that certain features uh, uh, of the traditional uh, liturgy were retained simply because of an ecumenical uh, note. And then the modernists, of course, always are ecumenists before everything else.
0: Mm. And I'm thinking about, you know, the relation of, of tradition to modernity as you're talking, actually, and, and it's sort of, it's, it's, there's sort of a geographic commentary on the present that when we think about Antioch, this this once great Episcopal see, that now it's obscured within, you know, modern-day Turkey. It, yes, it's all yes. but gone. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we can think about, you know, not only the providential purpose of Rome, that our mm-hmm. Lord knew that, that Rome would be there and that it would be a place to preserve not just this feast but, but all, all sorts of other things within the church. Um, but that okay. also, too, in a way that, that Antioch can, can sort of stand in the stead for those of us who, you know, understand the crisis in the church not to be something that we simply arbitrate, pick and choose what, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, what we, we consider a man to be pope we don't get to just get to pick and choose what what he says, but that for us perhaps it's a bit more of an Antiochian experience than a Roman one for now, because I can go to Rome and it looks like everything's fine. If I go to Antioch, yes, right, yeah. yeah, I have yeah. to I have to see I have to see with the eyes of faith, don't I?
1: Yeah, and, and, indeed you do, because everything is in ruins. Of course in Rome, at the same time, you can see, especially during the week of prayer for Christian unity, or the Assisi times, you can see how, spiritually speaking, the Eternal City really is, uh, is, is a ruin. It's, it's a disaster, a shipwreck, the bark of Peter, a shipwreck. Which takes me to the point that how can you keep one, or if you're following the modernist missile, one or if you're from the traditional muscle, rather two of uh, these feast days of the primacy of St. Peter. How can you keep those feast days without actually believing in the primacy of St. Peter? I often Ask myself that, and the people say, "Well, of course, I believe in the primacy of Saint Peter. He's the Pope, and we pray for him. And then, of course, if he speaks ex cathedra, on those really rare occasions, where well, then we have to obey him and abide by what he says. But aside from that, we'll go with our particular guru or leader or bishop. Whatever he'll tell us whether or not we're supposed to obey this or that thing that comes from uh, Saint Peter's see. And how different." that attitude is, which is simply a schismatic attitude, how different that attitude is from anything even remotely Catholic. Uh, The great Bossuet, for example, the wonderful French bishop and orator, who did have a little bit of Gallicanism in him, truth to tell, uh, gave uh, beautiful sermons for the Feast of St. Peter's Chair on the 18th of uh, January, in which he so very highly extolled uh, the, the primacy of saint peter but that's that 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 is a truth that's almost gone it's almost abolished and done away with how sad that how sad that is i think that today you can say Stephen, that we breathe um, an air of schism father faber talks about uh, the danger 19th century england of breathing the air of heresy that's understood the heresy and of apostasy but in our own midst where we think that we're safe with our own periodicals or websites or friends some, certain people at the masses or the sermons they attend, uh, there's, an air of, there, there's an air of schism that is not just lingering in the air, but it's breathed in, it's inhaled deeply. And everyone, everyone lives that way. That is to say that people don't really have a concept that, that Peter could never fail, that Peter could never lead us wrong, that the church could never give us anything bad, wicked, or evil, or harmful. To, to Catholic truth, it, that simply could not happen. That all all of that doctrine is lost. So when you're talk, when they talk about the Romans and negotiating with the Romans and and uh, the Pope this and the Pope that, you know, criticizing and accusing him, how can they how can they keep these these feast these glorious feast days of uh, of Saint Peter? And while many Many uh, so-called traditional Catholics do indeed um, say the traditional Mass, and uh, they they put in the name of, uh, in this case, Benedict XVI, the Ratzinger, into the canon of the Mass. Nevertheless, they don't do it with the idea that uh, that they actually are going to be submitted to him, because they may have very well have opened up their their churches, or uh, as one of the church fathers says, set up their altar in opposition to. Uh, Another altar, the altar of the, the, the ordinary of the place, the bishop of the diocese. They're there without jurisdiction, without permission. Um, so when, when, you, when you talk about the primacy of St. Peter, when you talk about these feast days, you, you get into uh, the heart of the error that infects the traditional Catholic movement. And the tragedy, I think, is this. I think that you have to say, in, with a sincere desire... To save the Catholic faith, these leaders and their followers have n- mutated, changed, mutilated the Catholic faith in order to change it. That is to say that the whole idea of the supremacy of the of the Petrine office and jurisdiction is just gone now that's not there anymore or the fact that the pope could never teach error to the whole church as a private doctor maybe he could make a mistake on a theological point but he could never teach the whole church error and everybody says that all of these popes all the way through for for decades and decades now have taught error and therefore they have to be resisted so i i i would call upon anybody and everybody who's going to keep the feast on uh, the 18th of, of this month, or the 22nd of next month, to, to consider these, do a little reading, consider these things. Read the texts themselves from from the Missal. Go back and read the Catechism. Read, read some of the saints and the, some of the sermons of the fathers of the Church and um, understand that this would be impossible um, I could read you a little something from Cardinal uh, Schuster. I was doing some research uh, with him this morning in preparation for, for our radio show. He says, the pontifical primacy is the polar star which guides the bark of the church across the treacherous and stormy ocean of time. Bishops, patriarchs, entire nations, once glorious and believing, have many times made grievous shipwreck of their faith. And indeed, the scriptures tell us that in the last era of the world, many false prophets and pseudo-Christs shall appear who will endeavor to mislead the multitudes, even by the example of uh, of their own false faith. Uh, Very interesting, and and of course, very, very powerful uh, writings um, and that's just something that I, that I, that I picked up almost at, at, at random, um, working false miracles, the, uh, the cardinal continues, to confirm their errors. If then we cannot trust anyone. This is the part that really hit me. If we cannot trust anyone, since all are liable to err, from whom must we seek safety in the supreme matter of our eternal salvation, if not from Peter? His faith, as we as we know, on the testimony of our divine Redeemer himself, can never fail. And the sheep which Peter recognizes as belonging to his fold will be recognized and admitted as such also by Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. Another um, another writer, a bishop, actually refers to masses in which a When there is a true pope, the true pope is not prayed for as being an incomplete sacrifice. But I think you have to take that in the whole sense, not only mentioning the name of the man, but actually being in in communion with him, union with him, in submission to him. Very, very important points. So you see why this takes us back to the idea. Why two feasts? You see why we have two feasts? We should have, and actually three observances if you count St. Mark's Day in the the procession, and then four, if you count uh, St. Peter and Paul in June, and then their their octave. It's important, uh, we talked about this theme a little bit in our um, show for uh, Christ the King. Um, Pope Pius XI says, the best way to keep the faithful uh, aware, to educate them about the great truths of Catholic doctrine, is not by some dry teaching tool, but by, by means of feast days. So what a glorious thing. But it's not going to do you any good to keep these feast days as uh, sort of an empty letter. I think um, our Catholic faithful, our Catholic bishops, our Catholic priests have to, have to forget about party or political considerations and have to expel the schism from their lungs and have to get back into the real Catholic teaching ab- about these points and get it, get it straightened out again which would maybe take me back to my story at the top of the hour, as they say, about uh, Father Richter and the empty chair. <laughs> if, if the chair is not empty, well, then that means that the man who's in it is teaching the truth to all of Christendom. And that's the bark of Peter, and that's the rock on which our faith rests. But if everybody is saying, wait a minute, that's not, that's not possible. That's not even Christian. Then well, the reason for that is that he is not the successor of Peter. There, 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 there you have it. That's obviously my own perspective on things. But I do think that uh, th- these things matter. Well, and I think you, you've also
0: showed that the people who are in, we would classify them as the recognize um, and resist crowd. They're sort yes, of in between yes. a rock and, and a hard cathedra, maybe. Mm-hmm. Indeed, um, yes. And, and because, because if it isn't if these if these men aren't um, uh, popes the alternative if you're believing that they are is that we have had a whole slew of saints blessed quote unquote blessed John I mean it's humorous just to say that out loud actually blessed John the 23rd I can't I can't say that without laughing uh, apparently right. Paul the sixth as well soon uh, and then we he also is, have now Tonto
1: yeah they we need, have they Tonto
0: Subito, that's John Subito John that's Paul the second. <laughs>
1: Uh, right? And and Paul the sixth is the 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 servant of God now. Paul the sixth. Well, that's Mm. a stretch. Everybody knows (laughs) that. That's a real stretch. You know, from many different perspectives. So um, then then you get someone who's going to say, oh well, you know, the canonizations really, really, really aren't infallible. Whereas we well know that they are indeed an exercise of the church's infallible, infallible uh, magisterium. And there there'd be some way to you know the weasel weasel out on all of this stuff. And but. Look at the sacred scripture. Look at the fathers of the church. Look at the catechism. Look at the sacred liturgy and the unchanged missal. There isn't any weaseling out of all of this stuff. You you have to say, "Oh, I'm a systematic, aren't I?" Yeah, and that's of course that that realization, <laughs> um, which is a highly unpleasant one, which would really wake you up if you were sleeping. Maybe um, that 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 realization, um, unfortunately, regularly drives uh, not only faithful, but even priests, into the conciliar church. Um, I heard about an Australian Pius X priest just uh, around Christmas time, uh, Father Arthur by name, who wrote a really very nice, respectful letter to to Bishop Fellay, in which he had to resign from the Pius X Society, and he said, well, oh, I've just got to find uh, be as conservative as I can as a diocesan priest, but the bishop is going to accept me, because it's impossible otherwise and that's the point it's impossible otherwise so really the only you might say that the only way the whole R&R position uh, can uh, exist um, aside from the fact that it appeals immensely to the have your one eye you know have your cake and eat it too crowd uh, the only way that can exist is that you make a dead letter of the catechism the fathers of the church the scripture and the liturgy; these all these all are a dead letter. And what? You're doing that like in the name of honoring the memory of one dead archbishop, for example, or one you know really big, powerful, well-organized traditional movement that that seems to kind of have it together. Is this? But you know what? What shall a man give in exchange for his own soul? How sad! And how can you save well, your soul outside of Peter's Park? I mean, I, I don't see it myself. <laughs> I really don't. So the, the feast days, the feast days, the feast days. These celebrations—they're a call every year for Catholics to have to hold a logical position about these things, and not in effect wake up one one night and find themselves. Wait a minute, I'm a systematic, aren't I? Yeah, you are. But your answer is not going to be. You're not going to save yourself by going into into apostasy, the one-world religion. You'll, you'll save yourself by adopting a, a clear, logical Catholic principle about this.
0: Right, and I think that probably as we're as we're getting towards the end of our show, Your Excellency, it takes us back to the beginning, where we were talking about that Bernini piece, and and actually your story about the empty chair is that um, I I'm sort of revisiting my own feelings. The very first time I, I laid eyes on that um, uh, piece of art, I was um, 20, and um, I was still figuring out. Um, I was still trying to work out what had happened. I had only learned mm-hmm. about the traditional mass a couple of years beforehand, and I was still putting together the pieces, so for me, when I saw that piece of art, I connected it to that feeling of, oh, I'm Catholic, and I'm in St. Peter's, and you know, the church is so glorious. And mm-hmm. um, I was in Rome a couple of years ago, and a profoundly different feeling, obviously being back there, still being bowled over by its beauty. But there being a sort of profound sadness as I, you know, I saw people walking around and I I thought, well, they're never going to get to see a real mass right here. You know, the sort of mass that were celebrated at that, at that, that's a privileged altar back there. And the the sort of, the sort of sadness that, you know, we, there's some of us who get to to see with the eyes of faith that unfortunately the church, the positions of authority in the church are occupied by modernists. But the Catholic position is not to say, well... They are still bishops, but, you know, only when I feel like it. It's like, right. clearly these men right. are either bishops or, or they're not. They're either the or holders of Catholic authority or they're not.
1: There's no, right.
0: uh, when I feel like it on Tuesday. That's right. No, um, it's yeah, Especially that Tuesday happens to be the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter. So, yeah, exactly. um, when, when we look at this feast, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of times we, we always have reflection points for traditionalism. But in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, this, this uh, um, feast, and we're tying it together with another show that we're doing this month um, that one of my co-hosts, Dr. Pierre Tugel, will be doing um, with one of the CMRI priests about a Father, I think it was Father Faber article on um, devotion to the Pope. And this idea is like, well, what, what's real devotion to the Pope? You know, what does mm-hmm. that mean? Is that just... Is that just, I mean, so we, we, uh, we, we, we sing a song at the end of benediction, does, does that mean that we're devoted to the Pope, or that we actually follow what we say, what he says, as opposed to what we, what we say is okay for him to
1: say? Yes, exactly. Oh, yes, that, that's, that's so very true, so that uh, uh, you think of that quote from Pope St. Pius X, this is, this is what the Pope demands of you, you actually obey me, you do what I say. So how can we justify mm. this whole ecclesiastical system, carefully elaborated, powerful, spread throughout the whole world and growing, um, which ignores the Pope? Which ignores the Pope? So it's it's schismatic. It's not a it's not a Catholic. Say what you want about it. It's not a Catholic entity. It can't possibly be, because it it ignores the Pope. It it says that he's the Pope, but we can ignore him, and that that teaches falsehood to our children. That's really that's really a very very bad thing. So. So these are, I'm, I remember my visits to Rome, especially my visit after I was consecrated a bishop, that there's, a, of course, there's a, there's a feeling of, of glory and of devotion and of, and of history and of pride for being a Catholic, but at the same time there's such a sad feeling that you, that you think all of these posts are occupied by modernists and the, 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 the chair of Peter, the cathedral of, of doctrine and truth has become the chair of pestilence now. Uh, of ca- casting everywhere, just confusion, and falsehood, and false religion. So much so that because we breathe it in every day, we we, we compromise with it, and we and we uh, we uh, we make our we make our little discounts. We allow our discounts, and then we somehow manage to. We think that we manage to survive. But these feast days, and and they these feast days, that sort of almost rise up out of the missile and you almost see Saint. Saint Peter pointing his finger at you and saying, Wait a minute, what kind of false doctrine have you gotten yourself into, you mister Traditionalist? Tu es petrus, a superang patram edificabo meam. That's the Catholic faith. That's the Catholic truth. Don't bargain that away. You have no right to do that. Besides, you're not going to save the Catholic Church. God will save the Catholic Church in his own way. We don't need your formulae and your means to, uh, to be able to sort of compromise away Catholicism somehow to make, make make for something that will work no 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 let 's just uh, we don 't have the backs on our chairs we don 't have the authority let 's just um, um, let 's just keep what is what is passed down to us the pure Catholic doctrine let 's practice it in all charity as much as we can then let 's let's, let's, let's go on with that, but truly, these feast days call upon a lot of the r and r people. To do a little, a little another R, which would maybe research, and then another R after that would be repentance. So I'm calling on the R and R people to become true R and Rs, researchers and repenters, for kind of like a New Year's <laughs> resolution.
0: <laughs> uh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, as we close the show, I think we can also, you, you and I both talked about that sort of sadness, but also I, I think there's a message of hope there because for us, the institution of the papacy is what matters, not any particular personality. We've had bad popes before. We've had, you know, uh, right. we've had mm-hmm. popes that have, that have brought, brought ignominy to that office before. Mm-hmm. Um, our times, are, our times are, are no different from other times in the church. And so we have, to, we have to put that in context and say, well, the institution, the chair endures despite mm-hmm. the current so-called usurpers.
1: Um, yes. Or
0: certain, I should say current usurpers, the so-called claimants.
1: Right, so we don't um, we don't change our Catholic doctrine in order somehow to be able to fit everything into our 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 global view of things. No, no, we simply we've received our Catholic doctrine. We want to teach that to the next generation, and we want to live it today in in this generation. So <laughs> that means that means that we do recognize the chair of pestilence when we stumble onto it. Mm. But one thing, uh, one of other thing. Very, very strong in, phrase actually. it is a strong phrase it 's it 's a scriptural phrase and the, and the phrase used by the fathers, and God knows it 's true i mean how how strongly is that true and and who that 's why we have to always be gentle in our estimations of our neighbor who may have fallen into the the swamp of the r and r uh, crowd, uh, just, you know, ignorance and superstition. You're just up to your, up to your thighs in it. Wow. Uh, but we have to be gentle at the same time because people breathe this in. That's really all they know. And um, it's very, that's why you have to have these strong Catholic principles. And they're they're not they're expressed in the liturgy. They're not ignored when they come up in the liturgy. Same thing with the catechism. Uh, but it's very difficult to resist. They're, it's a chair of pestilence. What's pestilence? Pestilence is a bug you get by just breathing it in, and everybody breathes in heresy, apostasy, and schism every day of the year. So people will tell you then seriously, well, don't you, you can't you can't. Uh, um, you can't be an irredentist, be be realistic, you have to live in our world today, you have to make your accommodations, and we'll do our best, we'll do our best. That was, you know, perhaps, perhaps, uh, some people say the idea of Paul VI with all of the changes. It was the idea of Archbishop Lefebvre, and, and a lot of the different uh, plans that uh, were proposed him, and that he agreed with to a certain degree before he finally rejected them. Thank God, uh, plans for a reconciliation with the with the conciliar church. Um, no, we're not going to go along to get along. We don't have to. We've uh, we're we're built on a rock, and we do indeed honor the chair. We honor the chair of Saint Peter. We honor way too much to be able to accept the substitute chair of pestilence. So I hope today's program maybe is like passing out gas masks to people so they don't breathe in the pestilence and don't fall ill themselves.
0: I think you're, I think those points are well taken. Absolutely. And I think that's a, that's a great note for us to end the show on. Um, you have been listening to Restoration Radio, um, the opening of the second season. Our show topic today was the Chair of St. Peter and our very distinguished, learned, um, and entertaining guest with His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. who took some time before his uh, mission trip this weekend to speak with us. Um, thank you so much for your time, Your Excellency. We're, we're looking forward, obviously, to all your appearances in season two of our show. Um, they're always well received. And um, thanks again oh, for thank your time. You, I know it's very valuable. Thank you,
1: Stephen. You're, you're, you're certainly welcome. It should be a should be an interesting 2013. <laughs> and I <laughs> and, hope that, yeah, and uh, we
0: made it past we made it past the end of the world.
1: Indeed we did, indeed we did. So therefore, if we say the truth on the radio show, it won't be the end of the world, I think. We'll survive. (laughs) Thank you, Your Excellency. God bless you. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.
0: This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not, in fact, the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to novosordowatch.org. That's novusordowatch.org.